0: And once again, so easy. Search UFY Video Lock, that's EUFY Video Lock, or visit UFYOfficial.com/slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Thank you, thank you, gentlemen and gentlemen. coming. I have fantastic news, everybody. My literary masterpiece, Life of the Party, which you have not read yet, will now be available in audiobook form. The was your called and said he thought it was a great idea because the pre-sales are going so well. So if you haven't already, please go to burtburtburt.com and pre-order your copy of Life of the Party. Pre-orders determine how well a book does overall, and if you tweet me a copy of your pre-order, I will follow you, I will favorite you, I will do your podcast, I will buy you beer. Ask anyone in Edmonton or in Pittsburgh, I'm still on tour. Nash Tucket, Nash Mantucket, Tampa, Irvine, Philly, Des Moines, Dayton, Phoenix. My show, Trip the airs every Wednesday night on Travel Channel at 9pm with a new episode. Today's guest my old manager and host of the podcast, The Industry Standard, Barry Katz. This is the Bird That unmistakable voice The <laughs> probably the most, I would say you have the most imitated voice in the industry.
1: Uh, it appears that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's, it's a, there's a, st- it's a statement it, it, To a person when you, when you see that person If you can't help but tell the story About them and do the imitation of them Do you do a good impression of I me? Do a b- I do the best in the business Because I know you Really? Yeah, and so, so my tell me impression- one,
1: tell me one story that you tell somebody, like, in a yard somewhere that involves me where you do my it, voice. It only works with comics.
0: And, and because it's... Oh, sorry, that's a... I'm, you know, it.
1: I want you... To, can you hear this here? I'm, I'm on this couch <laughs> in a man cave, and I'm leaning against something. I notice this noise that keeps making, like, <laughs> interrupting the podcast. I look over. There's a Ziploc bag <laughs> with some Old Spice palm tree uh, sunshine whatever smell a. Clippers to keep his uh, genitals groomed, and an electric toothbrush with no top, <laughs> with Oral B toothpaste, <laughs> and that's what and that's what I'm rubbing up against as I go here. Okay,
0: I uh, my impression of you is is deeper than say like an Elon Gould Gold Elon Gould. right? Is that saying? to yeah,
1: call him Gould for yeah. now. He could be um, non Jewish for this podcast. So
0: now you can't don't be Barry in this because my impression is t- it, I need a, a participant. Okay, you be me. All right. Okay. Okay, I've never I've
1: never tried to do another dialect other than myself.
0: So So, I'll I'll just do somebody that I think I am. This is what. This is why my impression's the best. Because. uh, So.
1: Why can't you just do both characters?
0: Okay. Okay. I'll do both characters. So, I'll be me, and this is Barry. So Barry would say, "We run into." He goes, "Hey, Papa, how are you doing this weekend?" (laughs) I said, "Good." And you just sit and nod your head, and then what happens to me is I go pretty good, pretty good, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I drank too much, okay. <laughs> I was, I took a Xanax to sleep one night, and I drank on the Xanax, and I probably shouldn't have done that. All oh right. So what you would do was you would your my impression of you entails not speaking at all because your 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 mantra was to you could get information out of me that I wouldn't tell a fucking soul. Because you because you wouldn't reply back and you knew I would talk. I don't even know if you did this on purpose, but I so it was like I just would divulge by the end I'm like, and I killed a hooker, okay? I killed a hooker. Did you get it? Did you get it all? Are you happy? Did, what happened with the audition? It was the first thing you ever told me when when I first met you, guys in the man cave, Barry Katz.
1: Oh, what an honor.
0: Barry Katz, the guy who single handedly is the re- probably the reason I'm working today. No questions asked. I started at his comedy club, David J. Nash, who was on your podcast, Industry Standard, by the way, which is an amazing fucking podcast. You are, I'm being dead serious. You are a, an a, insanely, acutely uh, wise interviewer. Thanks, man. I listened to uh, Eric Tenenbaum. Thanks, man. I listened to the guy that ran HBO. Chris Albrick. Chris Albrick was amazing. I didn't know his trajectory in his career. Barry's podcast is basically talks to people who are the decision makers in Hollywood or the people that make a difference in Hollywood. And he talks about what is important in Hollywood. What is uh, it is, if you're at all interested in Hollywood, you it you don't even need to recognize the name because that is how Hollywood works. The names you don't know are the decision makers, and you can listen from beginning to end and you learn so fucking much it is amazing it's
1: I uh, thank you so much you know when is you know, we'll talk about that thing that you wanted to talk about because I want to talk about that too it's what's amazing about it is the fact that when I started it and um I guess I can share this with you yeah. I'm I man obviously I managed you when you first started yeah. and um one of the things about managing someone that's so exciting is that there's a checklist of goals that a person has as an artist when you're a young artist like you just want to be a regular at the, at the comedy seller or or the Boston or it's wherever it is. amazing how
0: you don't see past you, that in you, this business. Yeah, you just want... Because if you did, you may not get into this business. <laughs>
1: yeah, you, you just want to be somebody who's like maybe does a set on a late night show yeah. or something of that
0: nature. That was a big goal of, of the majority of guys starting.
1: So the goals aren't that great. But the, the fact is when you're a manager and you, you, with your talent and their talent, you accomplish goals. Like for Bert and I, one of the most amazing things and one of the things on his list was that he wanted to... Um, have a development deal for his own television show which was w- which was obviously a number one goal but way off in the distance but unbelievably the way we worked and we'll tell that story probably later is that literally like within a couple of months after meeting him we're in a car with will smith driving the pitch meetings
0: driving over beverly Glen, <laughs> yeah. and i remember you going so this is the easiest way to get to the valley from the, <laughs> Beverly Hills. And I was yeah. like, I just want to know. I, I, like, I knew so little about anything that I was like, wait, what's, we're going to Beverly Hills? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And so what I was saying about the podcast is the fact that when you work with somebody with my talent and their talent and something happens, it, it's incredible. But when you go home at the end of the day, you realize that you've only been able to inspire and help one person. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to start the podcast badly a couple of years ago, but then I thought to myself something that I tell artists not to worry about, which is I was worried what people would think, and That's so I so, so I didn't do it. And then I said, "Fuck it, I'm gonna do it."
0: That's so funny because your best and and I and I there's uh, there are uh, Be- Barry has some amazing traits. One of them, and I will, I'll probably mention all of them throughout this podcast one of them is your your advice to comics is and and the you, some of the advice you given me and one of the advice you gave me is uh to ignore what people think i remember you said it so clearly i we i did this, a true. showcase and i bombed and you said to me and i was so freaked out i called you and i was like Barry i'm so freaked out what are these people thinking and he goes <laughs> you go let me tell you something papa they're not thinking about you I think you're highly overestimating how much people think about you. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, really, he goes, what have you been thinking about all day? I go, me. And he goes, them too. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's true. You get so obsessed about what people think about you, and you realize, I'm thinking about me. They're thinking about them. That's no one's right. thinking about me.
1: That's right. And so, and so I, I realized I was being stupid, and I took my own, you know, they say those who can't manage and so then I started, I said, I'm going to do this and I want to talk to the, because no other manager was doing it, no other producer was doing it. No, so that says something like, hey, there's a reason why they're not doing it. So then I thought, well, I only want to do it if I could talk to these network presidents and studio executives or people who really hadn't done that many podcasts before. Then I realized when I made the commitment, I still had to call these people.
0: That's the worst.
1: And I have to ask them to do it. And and the first person I called was Doug Herzog, who's the Doug you know, Herzog ch- was
0: the first uh, pilot we sold. Yeah, to Fox with Will Smith. That's right. And Doug Herzog was in the room, and I remember. I remember. Uh, I remember he just. I remember very candidly. He was like, "I'll buy it." Like I don't think we even said anything.
1: <laughs> no, and he was like, "I'll buy it." No, he 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 felt he's a special man, and now he's the chairman of the Viacom Entertainment Group, which is the president of Comedy Central, TV Land, Spike, like seven networks. And then once he said yes, it's like anything else. Like when you're trying to do something, if you're trying to negotiate a deal, let's say your deal with Travel Channel, you have another offer on the table. There's other people who do it, and slowly, you know, I got people like you know. Um, Chris Albrecht and Chris Albrecht's Albrecht was interesting one. because Chris Albrecht had a you know a lot of things going on and I called him up and it's interesting what you said about the tact of not saying anything because I I just when you said that I really didn't wasn't cognizant that I do it but now you reminded me when I called Chris Albrecht to do the podcast he said Barry obviously I can't do any podcasts I can't do any interviews I turned down the New York Times I turned down the Time Mag I'm not gonna do. Any interviews? I'm sorry, I, I I can't do it. And at that moment, I did something that I guess I hadn't done in a while. I didn't say anything, and there were five seconds, seven seconds, eight seconds, ten seconds, still didn't say anything. And all of a sudden, on the other end of the phone, he said, "All right, Barry, I'll do the fucking podcast." <laughs> <laughs> And and he came and he did it and all these people they they you know, they have like tight time frames, they have like an hour, but then they always you give them the hour sign and they always stay I just did Doctor Phil. Doctor Phil has never done a wow. podcast. And people don't know this. He runs this whole stage twenty nine, which is the you know, he has all the, the doctors and the test and the um and Doctor Phil but he's also he has a great story that he never tells. And I, I, you know, I was, I was after him for nine months, took me nine months to get him. I mean, I would call him, I called him and when he was in Italy, I called him and just, I guess I just probably wore him down and and at the end of the podcast, he divulged so many things about his life that he was homeless and lived in a car with his alcoholic father when he was a teenager, that his two sisters married when they were 14 he said that he was a millionaire before he got an Oprah, and he was involved in her with her when he uh, she was sued by the meat industry in yeah. Texas, and he convinced her to go through with it. All of her lawyers said settle, and he said, Oprah, do not settle. There will be a long line to the Oprah Sue Club if you settle. Fight them. But anyway, the nice, point yeah. being is that and at the end of the podcast, he's like, "How? I just want to know, how did you get me here? Why am I here? How did you get all this information out of it? It was kind of comical. Yeah. But, and so, but by doing this, you start and you do these podcasts like yours or whatever. And then people give you the metrics. And then you realize that 2 million people download things that you're on. And you, and you realize you're getting letters from all over the world. And not just people in entertainment. People are like, hey, I work in a this law firm in a cubicle. And now I know what I have to do. To get to the next level, I have to create a problem. Like when I interviewed Walter Newman, it was fascinating. Who's Walter Wal- Newman? Walter Newman was an assistant at Comedy Central for three years, wallowing in defeat as an assistant in a cubicle. And he would work hard every night. And uh, I'll tell you this quick story. So he's in the By cub- the way,
0: that's an oxymoron with Barry. I'm sorry.
1: It might not be a quick story.
0: So, so he was wallowing so, in the cubicle.
1: And one night he tells a story, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but of how he, I think he finally was going to get some action, he was working so hard, this girl called him up, get together, hook up, whatever, and then she cancels at the last minutes of Friday night, and he's like, ah, fuck it, I'll just stay at work and search the internet for more content, more original content from people out there who aren't getting their due. Yeah. And he found uh, this group called Mail Order Comedy, and... uh he thought to himself as he put the stuff on dvds he thought you know should i just put this on my boss's desk or should i make a post and make a dvd and put it on every single executive that's desk? a fucking brilliant move so he put it on his boss's desk he put it on every boss's desk every every executive's desk and they all watched it they talked about it in that meeting they have every week to talk about television shows and that television show is workaholics and so after Are that, so after that went on the air, Walter Newman was no longer an assistant, and Walter Newman was getting offers from everywhere, and now he's the director of comedy development of Adult Swim. Holy
0: shit, that's a great story. But
1: it's true of anything. Doug Herzog on Comedy Central, he talked about Debbie Liebling, Liebling who was a lower uh, level uh, uh, executive, and he talked about the story where he. ...was walking through the hallways or something... ...and she tapped him on the shoulder... ...he said, can can I show you something, Doug? And he's like, sure. And they went in the conference room... ...and she took out a VHS tape. That's how long ago it was. And she popped in a two-minute animated tape... ...the South Park Christmas card... ...that they had sent out to a thousand people... ...by VHS tape. And he watched it and he's like... ...play it again. She played it again. He says, play it again.
0: (laughs) Play it again.
1: He said, listen... And he said this on the podcast, listen, true to my forum, I was wrong about this. I said, listen, we can't put this on the air, but let's bring these guys in here and do a deal. Yeah. But he ended up putting it on the air. The show's made a billion dollars, and Debbie Liebling wasn't a lower-level executive anymore. <laughs> so people all over the world who listen to the podcast, they don't have to be in entertainment. You could be you could be working at McDonald's and figure out how to get to the next level, or working at a law firm, or a medical uh, facility, or anywhere you are you're working. It's just it's all about how do you how do you deal with the defeats, the challenges. But it's the entertainment business as the genre and the backdrop. Like just like, you know, just like uh, whatever you know, news radio. It wasn't about the it wasn't about the place where they were. It was about the journeys of each character and how yeah. they went. So that's what I wanted to do with it. And the fact that you have listened to some, I, of course, I'll tell you what I'm happened. like completely humbled by well, it. I'm like uh, I
0: I I I got the first one. Uh, it was Doug Herzog, and I listened to that on a ride to Brea. Now,
1: keep in mind, like I just so your audience knows, I feel like a magician doing a trick
0: here. I never told you to listen to it, did I? No, 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 no. no. Uh, someone told me, you know, Barry has a podcast. And I went, in my head, I was like, I wonder what Barry's talking about. And then I saw it, it was industry standard. Now, I am, I am grossly obsessed with how this industry works, mostly because I'm on the other side of the fence and there's, there's hedges up. So I can never really see how the sausage is made on the other side. So to, 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 to witness, to be able to see behind that curtain is is fascinating. I mean, majority of comics are like, how do I sell a show? Well, once you sell a show, you're like, okay, how do I start producing my own shows? Then once you do that, you're like, all right, how do I start a production company where I can get my other friend's shows? and, it's like, and so, that, so I listen to the one with Herzog and then... And then I was on the road. I just did a deal with. Uh, I would just gone out and sold a show with Eric Tenenbaum, and and we we sold it to an three an amazing man. We we sold it to three networks. We our pitch was fantastic, and there was a bidding war. And Eric's like, "This is the best situation to be in," and I was like, "Fuck yes!" And I'm sitting in a hotel room. We just took off to go do Travel Channel. Sitting in a hotel room, thinking. My shit is unstoppable right now. I am fucking on fire. Like, I just, I like, and I'm like, B man, like, you know, you pat yourself on the back, and I, and I look and I see your podcast, he has Eric Tenenbaum on it, and I go, you know what? Let me get to know the guy I'm working with. Turns out. (laughs) I didn't sell a show to three networks. Eric Tenenbaum sold a show to three networks. <laughs> Apparently, he is the Moses of television. <laughs> and I literally was humbled in my bed. And I was like, I'm so honored to be working with Eric. Thank you so much, Eric, for getting me into these rooms. Thank you for sitting by me and saying, I want to work with him. Because they were like, well, we want to work with Eric. Whoever Eric wants to work with is who we want to work with. And I was like, I took, it was, it's interesting. Humility is such a valuable Trait to have in this business and hubris and ego can tear you down so fucking quickly. And I literally like listened to that whole podcast and was like, God damn it, here I am. I've been sitting in a room with Eric, you know, a handful of times, maybe 10 times, t- talking about me. Like, how come I didn't listen to him? It's my, it's my problem is not listening. David Steinberg uh, and I worked together on something, and David said, You know, I really find you interesting. Bert, we should do a lunch and maybe figure out a project. I was like, Great. So I go to lunch with him. I didn't let him talk about him at all. I talked about me. Turns out David Steinberg is a fucking trailblazer in comedy. He is the head of the TM movement in Beverly Hills. And it is everything I need in life David Steinberg has the key to. And I was like, if I had let him talk, I would fucking be so much richer of a person. And it's one of the traits you do have is you do let people talk. You, like, you're a good interviewer on these podcasts. And, Thanks, and you bring it back, you bring it back to the, to the thing that when the guy says something interesting and then goes on a tangent, you bring it back to that thing. I don't do that. I change subjects and so people are like, he was about to tell you what it was like to work with Leonardo DiCaprio when you cut him off. So
1: I'm going to tell you that I think, and I've rarely used this term, I think you're wrong about something. <laughs> about what? <clears throat> uh, and if Eric Tannenbaum were here, he'd tell you the same thing. Eric is a facilitator. He's a master facilitator he's a master executive at and he he he's like a um he's like a great referee in an n b a finals game you know when the game's there and the spotlight's on he disappears you don't really see him, but you know his presence is there keeping the game moving yeah. and keeping the game one of the greatest games you'll ever see in your life that's what he does his goal is to work with great talent, and get the fuck out of the way. And I will share this with you where you're wrong, very wrong. I've gone out with Eric Tannenbaum many times. I've sold shows with Eric Tannenbaum. I've had bidding wars with Eric Tannenbaum. But in the past two years or a year, I went out with a show, a big show, a big package, and I'm not insulting you, with big people that are like iconic people that I didn't even know I had the ability to be around and package a show with. And we went everywhere, and we did not sell that show. And you sold your show, somebody at a much lower level than these people. And and I'm talking about people that are household household names above anybody that we ever think of. But you did it because you went in the room and sold it, and you sold yourself, and painted the picture for those executives so it was a no-brainer so that when the door closed, they said, we have to be in business with this person. And there's many times you go on pitches and you're not aware of this because you're not in these rooms. Sometimes the people who don't get the things done are the people who you expect to get the things done. And sometimes the people that don't. There's a reason why Russell Wilson is holding a championship trophy and a guy who has 15 years more experience than him isn't. Okay? It happens that way. Sometimes people go in the rooms and they can do something really special. And then there's the person who has the sense of entitlement that doesn't necessarily go in there with as much hunger. So Eric, yes, Eric can get shit done. He can sell shows. But keep in mind, if I were to speak to Eric and if he were right here, and I would say, tell me all the shows you're executive producing that are on the air right now. And he'd say, two and a half men. Uh tell me what other shows you have that you're executive producing that are on the air right now uh two and a half men because it's fucking hard out there it yes really he's he's executive producing the I think the second or third longest running show in history. He's probably like you know putting money into piles on piles of other <laughs> piles of other piles <laughs> yeah and then amazingly successful man fascinating career. but the fact is is that out of all the shows he's worked on for the last 12 years he has one on the air that lets you know how tough the, the, the television business is and if he has another one on the air this season my apologies eric but i'm just saying from what i know from the last time we are together so your show had three, uh, bidding war for three things. One person paid the price. Now you've got to sit down and you've got to figure out what, show, what showrunner or writer you're going to write this thing with, which is the next step.
0: Oh, it's the, the entire oh. process of make, creating television. And I've gone through, I went through tw- two of them with you, and it, uh, it, was, it, it, is, it is so enjoyable to get the deal. And, and development, it's, as you start developing, it's like uh, being in a relationship and you can see telltale signs of it going south. And you're like, uh-oh, this, this doesn't seem good. Like you said well, the first time I got my deal, you're like, this is great. The stars aligned. But realize the planets now don't need to align. And the stars need to stay in the same place they were in order for the show to get on the air.
1: Think about it, for your audience to think about this. Will Smith. Is walking into rooms to do a television show. If Will Smith can't get a fucking show on the air, at least get a pilot made. Yeah. What does that tell you about the television? Eddie Murphy had a pilot last year with Brandon T. Jackson. Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and it didn't get on the air. Yet Whitney got picked up for a second season or Up All Night or Think. Eddie not, this is no disrespect to Up all night and Lauren Michaels or whatever, but Eddie Murphy, yeah, it's like it's like this is the thing if you were if Whitney were right here, she'd be like, "I got picked up and Eddie Murphy didn't yeah, that's what's crazy about this business, and that's what tells you it's all about the content and the personality. all these people are looking for is somebody who makes them feel safe and who they know America will love and rally around, and sometimes the shows that don't work, I'm not talking about dramas or dramedies, yeah. I'm talking about comedies, if you don't have huggable and lovable characters in those shows, you're in deep shit, and you can point to every single show on the air that has not been a juggernaut, even if they're still on, and you'll find characters that are not huggable and lovable. On the show Whitney, for instance, it, it went two years, forty or forty-four episodes, which t-
0: is a massive accomplishment. Ma- that's in like, this business. It's like that's like getting to the Olympic trials <laughs> and and losing by point two seconds. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's like that kind of thing. But the fact is, if you analyzed all the characters and you broke all the characters down in the show, there's not one character in the show that's the kind of character like how that's lovable as like an Ellen or like a. A Michael Richards Kevin James. Or a Kevin James. Like, you know, America loves the fat guy. <laughs> yeah. Which, so it's like, uh, not that he's fat anymore, but y- you know what I'm saying? So, so those are the kind of characters that you have. And even in 30 Rock, you know, which was a show that was very successful, won many Emmy Awards. But I think even Tina Fey, if she were listening, would say, God, I wish the ratings were bigger and stronger. And how come Two and a Half Men gets $20 million uh, people and we get six or five million yeah but the point being is if you analyze all the characters on the show uh none of them are like that you want to run up to when you want to hug they're all like they're all borderline characters where they're not unlovable but they're not like 100% lovable and i always say in terms of formulas and shows and things you know, People are always trying to do something new. They're always trying to do something new. But if you analyze the way television is, even something like 30 Rock, if you are a historian, 30 Rock is, I love the show. I mean, I love it. But if you analyze it, it's just the Mary Tyler Moore show. Tina Fey is Mary. Oh, yeah. Alec Baldwin is Lou Grant. And Tracy Morgan is Ted Knight. It's just holy the, it, shit. It, it, it's i never just, looked at it that way. But you know, you, there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily new in comedy. It's like, for instance, you know, David Copperfield will be the first one to tell you that you 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 have to study the people before you. Candid camera, you know, C- candid camera is the is the is the lifeline to shows like Punked or you know, Girls Behaving Badly or all these things. It's like. Yeah it's the formula that you th- and then you adjust the formula and you make it your own. And when you do your show, you're going to notice that there's formulas and characters that you have on your show that are going to have similarities
0: to certain things that have been in the past.
1: Yes, there's shows that
0: Now do you say do you say to embrace those similarities so that they're more familiar to America? Or do you say, simply recognize them and do your own thing?
1: You've got to recognize them and embrace them and do your own thing. And it's like, so, so <laughs> this, it's,
0: this is what it's like being managed by Barry, everybody. <laughs>
1: so uh, give me an example. Like There's very few things that have never been done before in, in Half Hour comedy. I'll give you an example of one thing that's never been done before, never been done before since. Bob Newhart's show, I think it was called Newhart, Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl. Okay, there's never been a show that had three brothers that were named the same. (laughs) There's no formula in television ever that ever had that in it. You could try to analyze every show in the world, and it's never happened. So there are things that happen in many shows that have never been done before and are wonderful techniques. Like, for instance, you say DJ Nash. He's been trying to get a show about his own life on forever because uh, he he grew up his father was blind. Finally, there's a sitcom Growing Up Fisher. Yeah, with a blind father on the thing. Never been done before that I know of on television in a half hour comedy.
0: Yeah. And I was th- in a pilot with him with a d- blind father. That's right. <laughs> that,
1: <laughs> that was, yeah was the gold. first pilot we did and, he had, and that's I want to talk about that too because that was something that really that's really an important thing for your audience to hear about that. But so the fact is is that, yes, there's going to be characters like the father who have characteristics like that blind father. But the, the actual technique of how it is, and it's a real technique because it's real life, is something that America hasn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And the key is to make it funny without America going, ugh... And that's why it's been so hard for him to get it on the air. And he's been trying for 10 years to get it on the air. And it's finally on the air and doing well. And so every show you want to do, like for instance, Mary Tyler Moore. Hello, this is Carlton, your doorman. You yeah. never saw Carlton the doorman. Never been done in any sitcom before that. Carlton, your doorman. Home improvement. Home improvement took a little bit of that with the neighbor who you could only see with the eyes down. That was yes. their Carlton, your doorman. Yeah, and it worked. And so these things are things that you have to think about as you go when you're doing things. But the bottom line is, if you have a great story and you create holy shit moments, Bert, you're holy shit win.
0: moments. There, are, there are there are phrases you're going to get from Barry <laughs> that will will stay in your head. For the rest of your li- life holy shit moments is something barry looks for in talent i'll never forget i i had a manager uh, i worked with barry what happens sometimes is a, a guy like barry will start a company and he will manage all the clients and then the, the list will become so big he'll hire uh he'll have his assistants then grow to managers and then they will start managing clients and there was a guy vincent nastry who i worked with i worked with barry and then vincent took care of me and if it was anything big barry would step in and 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 tell you the law. Like, I remember, uh, and I don't like talking about this at all, at all, at all. And I don't want this to be a part of my, uh, a part of my fucking... Anyway, let me just tell the story. You
1: can talk about anything you want. I know, but I, nothing, but I... Nothing is off limits here. So,
0: uh, but no, but uh, uh, when Van Wilder came out, uh, Vincent, and I think Andy, Andy Cohen or Scott Simpson, I think it was just Vincent, really, wanted to sue. And he was really adamant... They've taken it. It is the script they were developing. And he was very adamant. And I remember you got on the phone. You said like 10 words. You said, let me tell you something, Papa. There's two types of people in this business. People who sue and people who work. Which one do you want to be? And you hung up and I went, we're not suing. Fuck it. I don't give a shit. It's not my, That's not my story. I don't care. At the time I was working and I was like, great. Now, the other one. And I, I'm, By the way, Vincent, I know you're listening to this. And I love you. And we both love you with all our hearts. But the other one was, do you, this, is, and this is the That's greatest true. advice I've ever gotten. Ever fucking gotten. And, 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 and I know Judy's also listening to this, my current manager. And Judy, you give me great advice that also all the time. But I'm just saying, this, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, I went into um, CBS. I uh, had a deal at CBS. It was a year deal. And they developed a sitcom around me. David J. had a, de- a deal at the same time. And... Uh, in the deal you can also then audition to be another sitcoms. If they choose not to be make yours, you they can then plug you into another sitcom they yeah, have. Yeah, just so
1: to clarify for your audience, when you do a, a development deal, normally what they try to lock into the deal for young talent or people that haven't been doing that long and probably they try to do it now for established talent, is while they're developing for you, if things aren't going the way they want them to, they ha they can present you with three different shows to be cast into or test for to get. Yeah. If you pass on one, that's cool. If you pass on the second one, that's cool. If you pass on the third one, you got to give the money back. Yeah. And And so that's the way normally it works. Sometimes it's less.
0: And I had auditioned for David J. J. Nash. I I guess he's just called David J. Nash now? He was David J. then. Now he's DJ Nash. DJ Nash. So uh, I auditioned for DJ's part... And and he had written the part specifically for me. That's how smart David J was. Is that he knew they were making a sitcom about me, and he thought, well, if I make a sitcom about me and Bert, uh, b- just base it on Bert and his buddy Carl, then why wouldn't they make mine and put both of us in it? And so I auditioned, and the network decided they didn't want to go with me. And Vincent was like, f- fucking so angry, and he was like, Barry, you gotta call him and get. Just let him test. This and so was a, you,
1: this was a big moment for me.
0: And you called and you said, guys. You're already paying him. Who cares? Let him test. And they were like, "No." And and you fought for it, and you got me to test. And you told I fought me long and hard for that. You told me at Yamashiro, me you and Vincent. I can tell you where we were sitting. I love small details. It's when you're attached to the truth in your life, you remember the small details. I can tell you where we were sitting. I can tell you where I was sitting. I tell you where you were sitting. And and I told you, fuck it, Barry. I don't want to test. If they don't want me, I don't want them. And you said, let me tell you a story about Hideo Nomo. Do you remember this story? Keep going. <laughs> you said, Hideo Nomo played for the Dodgers, and he was amazing, Papa. He was crazy. First some year, he killed it. Second year, not so good. Third year, he drops off tirely, and they don't want him anymore. So they trade him to Boston. No one expected anything out of Hideo Nomo. His first game in Boston, what does he do? He throws a no-fucking-hitter. <laughs> do you know why? Because no one was expecting it. Be Hideo Nomo. And I fucking had tears in my eyes. And I fucking was like, I'm Hideo Nomo. I rolled into that fucking audition and I murdered it. I murdered the best audition I've ever had in my life. Because I thought to myself, I'm Hideo Nomo. Right now this is the Boston fans going, who the fuck's this Asian guy? And I walked in and I ripped it in Fox. And I walked in and I'll never forget. I walked in and I was so confident. Going, I just threw eight innings in Fox. All I got to do is close out at CBS because they already had the deal. And I walked in. Les Moonbez was in the front row. David J. was standing on, up Les front. Les
1: Moonbez, by the way, the most powerful person probably in the business.
0: And I walked in, and I, I knew all the ladies in the back. were are all, by the way, still the same ladies that are running CBS.
1: And just so you know, not to interrupt, but I am... There's a few things that happen when you go in these tests. You're in the meeting with all the executives that have been involved in the project, the executive producers of the television show, the star of the television show, the creator, the studio executives, the one who are deficiting the show. And I forget who was deficiting that show. Fox. Fox. So it was Fox Studio. It's not the network. So you have all the Oh, exe- no,
0: I think his was CBS Productions, maybe.
1: Or maybe it was CBS Productions. Whatever it was. You, you have all these people in the room, but there's one person who makes the decision, and that's the president of the network, and that's Les Moonbez. It doesn't matter if there's 30 people in the room and 29 people want the other guy. If Les Moonbez wants you, you have the gig, and that's how it worked with him. And He was an actor early on. He knew acting, and he chooses every single person. This is what's weird, again, for your audience that you should know about this business. Normally, you only have to fool people four times as an actor for five minutes, and you could be on television for seven fucking years. This is how (laughs) it normally works. You go, and your manager agent sends you in on audition, and you go to the audition with the casting director, with a person reading the script like they're functionally disabled, an intern with a camera that's like,
0: "Uh, state your name, please.
1: Uh, Wait a second, I didn't take the cap off. And doing, and you do yeah. your thing and you, you do well. Then you go to the next step your casting director and the executive producers and the star of the show. You go there, you audition for five minutes. If they love you,
0: then you get the test. Oh, look who it is Lorenzo! Remember Lorenzo? Yeah, he looks like he's lost weight. Yeah, he's doing CrossFit. Unbelievable. So keep going.
1: So then what happens is, is that uh, you go in and you go for this, this you test, you write out a contract. It's negotiated for six or seven years because you don't want to go into the test with the studio and not have that with them. And they say, oh, well, we want you. And then you say, hey, fuck it. I want more money. They make you sign a contract that has your rate for the pilot and rate for the series if it goes with every subsequent year or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So then you go in for the test at the studio. If they like you, you move on to the network. You go do that five minutes. They like you. You got the gig. Yep. But in your case which was amazing. You were like an NFL team with a bye. Okay? So you yeah. didn't have to go to the casting director. You didn't have to go to the executive producer and the casting director. You just went straight to the studio and the network. You only had to win twice.
0: I only had to win twice and and uh I and I was and I and the one hard one I think was the studio and when I went into the network I it was like it was almost like I felt like I felt like I couldn't lose because I knew all the all the women who ran the network, and all Judy or Julie, uh, Wendy, um, uh, Wendy Trilling,
1: Julie Pernworth, uh, uh, Edie, Edie Mendoza, yeah, Edie uh, Mendoza.
0: And so I knew all them, and they were on my team. But Les was sitting front and center in the very first row, and I had never met him. And I walked in. David J standing up front, and I remember the other thing you said is you are a comedian. Use that to your advantage make a joke when you go in there lighten the mood
1: it's so true everybody if you're listening to this and what's hard is for actors and actresses who aren't comedians and aren't in that world it's it's difficult because you can't go in you just got to go in and say you're ready because you're not confident you can make that light-hearted thing but it works you know anything comedic works i remember the first time
0: I had every meeting you can There's meet. a great story you have about Jeff Ross where Jeff Ross went in and said made a joke that you told me at that night. And you were like, this is what Jeff Ross did. And it, and it killed and he got the part. And I, I forget what the joke was. But I remember yeah, but thinking. It's like
1: these people go in and they do. Sometimes if a, you're a comedian and you're going to test for something. What I like to have somebody prepare is I would like to have them prepare like four or five opening lines. Because what can happen sometimes, you go to the studio test, you do it, and you tell your line, you make your funny line, you go and do it. And sometimes they hold you outside and they bring you back in again to do something a little bit differently. They say, listen, could you be a little angrier this time? And so I I have people prepare a different line for how many times they could possibly go in and do it. So people are saying, my God, he came up with another improv line there, he came up with another improv there. And guys like who it's worked really well for recently, guys who are comedians, I'm trying to like Dan, a dude, you know, he, he got super fun night and he went in and he had a different line for everything and, and made it work and it, and it worked for him and it works for you because you're funny and whatever. Mine,
0: mine worked in the sense that I was so, I was so uncaged at the time that I, that I was very, I was very uh, me in the moment. I was very honest and so I walked in and I, Les Moonves was sitting in the front row, and he goes, Hello, Bert, good to see you again. And I was like, I don't think we've ever met. And he goes, We haven't? And I said, I would definitely remember that hair. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the room starts laughing. And see what you did?
1: Now, I just want to share what you did right there. This is, this is so great. See, the thing is, is that as a comedian, you have to take risks. Yeah, you yeah. have to take risks. And so you have a guy who literally is God in that room. Yes. To those people. Those people in that room walk on eggshells around this guy. Okay? So I remember similarly with Whitney, uh, we were on a couch ready to pitch NBC. And the guy who we were pitching to, Jeff Engel, this tall, blonde, good-looking guy, goes by the couch and says, oh, Whitney, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit late. Just let me get settled and I'll, I'll bring you in for the pitch for Whitney. You know what I mean? And she stands up, gets right... Six inches from his face, and Whitney has this thing where she can look at you, and she's she, uber she sexual, has this <laughs> very sensual, but powerful way about her. Yeah, she stands up in her high heels, and she's eye to eye with him, sort of looking up at him, and she shakes his hand. And she's holding his hand, and she looks at him, and the first thing she says is, "My God, look at you! You're like a member of Hitler's master race." <laughs> <laughs> And I knew right then and there that show was sold. <laughs> and so when you so when you said that about Les Moonves' hair, the people in that room knew right then and there. Unless you took a shit on the floor, you were getting that gig.
0: Oh, I I want to say, and then and then he goes, and then he goes, "Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. I thank you." And I said, "I'm shocked. You're not an actor. You're gorgeous." And he started <laughs> laughing, and he, and I didn't know that he had been an actor. And then. he... He goes, well, it's good to finally meet you, Bert. And he starts loosening up. I go, have you met David J.? And he goes, and, and and DJ's silent. I go, DJ, have you met Les? And he goes, not yet. <laughs> I go, I go Les, this is DJ. <laughs> he goes, He goes. hello, David. Nice to meet you. And David, it was very nice to meet you. I like your hair as well. And then he goes, I go, should we start this? And he's like, okay. And both DJ and I probably sucked a dick in that room. But Les Moves was like, those are the guys. That's and he right. plugged us in. And,
1: you know, just to share with you here and, and- – to your fans listening it's like as a manager managing you at that point in time in my life was probably one of the highlights of my life as a manager that I'll always remember and that to me like there's things about managing that are wonderful they're exciting just like there's things about being a performer a musician a magician a comedian that whatever that are really exciting but there's other parts of the business that you know systematically beat you down uh like what what we're in now pilot season or the end of pilot season there's no there's no actor or actress or comedian or whatever or manager or agent that loves pilot season because the fact is is that you're it's like what Jerry Maguire would say, it's a pride swallowing thing. You're fighting to get your artists in the room when no one cares. No one needs anybody. There's like such a glut of everybody, and there's only a number of slots. And I'm grateful that this pilot season I probably had like 10 people test for things, but what I'm saying is, is that for me, it's not fun there's nothing fun you know at my you know and i feel like and maybe it's me saying this and it's not meant as a sense of entitlement it's just whenever you're doing something you want to have more control over things and as an artist you're trying to go in and you're going in and you know there's a hundred two hundred people that want to take you out you know you're going into the room with the casting directors and you know if you weren't even there they wouldn't even give a shit yeah. So everybody has to make their mark, and it's such a it's such a it's it, it's like the Amazing Race. If the Amazing Race had like two hundred contestants, yeah. And it's not just managers and agents. It's it's actors, actresses, comedians, and just trying to win the race because there's only one spot for you. There's only one. There can be only one winner. Except if it's a sketch show, you could be like the fourth best guy and get a sketch show. But yeah. So, these are things that, I, and going back to the podcast, that, you know, I don't really enjoy as much as I used to anymore, but I do it. And I do it well. I know I do it well, but I just don't, just like there's things well, that you do really well that you don't enjoy as much. And so, but getting back to, you know, your moment there when I was representing you, you telling those stories uh, about how we did it. And I say we because. When I met Bert I met Bert at my comedy club and he was like helping me with the door at the comedy club for stage time. And I just I and I've always been the kind of person and I don't know what this is about him and you can never quantify it in the court of law. I don't know why I I feel these things from certain artists that I just know something's gonna happen bert hadn't even been on stage i don't think bert been on stage 20 times in his life maybe 50
0: maybe yeah maybe maybe about 27 and, and, and so
1: i wanted to represent him and he was doing the door and he'd only been on stage 50 times but i saw something in him that i believed where he could get to the next level and I brought people to see him, even though he'd only been doing comedy fifty David times. David Tochterman, David Tochterman, who was working with uh, Will Smith at the time, he's now an agent at Innovative. Is he really? Yeah, and I, I, I didn't tell David you'd only been on stage fifty times. Yeah, but I, there was something about you that I loved, that I believed in. I was worried about you in certain cases, but I believed in you, and I knew that you were malleable. I knew you would listen. And I knew you would give it everything that you had. And I was, and when those things happened, when you're a manager, what happens is, is it's the same as an artist. The artist people are looking at, when, when that happened with Bert, and he got that development deal, and he was traveling around with Will Smith, all those comedians in New York that were so friendly to him and so nice and so wonderful, <laughs> Bert, come on, you want to do some stage time, whatever, do whatever...
0: Not so nice anymore after that. I remember you told me, do, you said, uh, get information, do not give information.
1: That's right. Lou, Lou Wasserman, long old-time uh, uh, agent, used to say that, yeah.
0: He said, do not tell anyone about this deal. Do but, not bring but, it up to anyone. But
1: it didn't matter because comedians are like grandmothers, and they found out, and they found out in a hurry. Yeah. And Teresa and O'Neill was the first one. And they started treating Bert uh, not, not well because they were jealous and they were unhappy and they thought it wasn't his time and other managers as well have always i don't want to say every manager but a lot of managers have always looked at me uh not like if they were not with a love and affection but like what the fuck you know he's got four people on snl and he isn't even who is this guy what's happening or Or how did Burt get this deal with Will Smith or what happened? And I've always been the kind of guy who I've always felt I could always make it happen. You just give me something. Give me something. And if I put my attention to it, I can make it happen. But as I said to you before the podcast, one of the hardest things, it's not, as they say, it's not getting there. It's staying there and and helping artists to continually reevaluate and make changes and do things and that's one of the things that i you should be very proud of your present manager Judy Brown because Judy's doing something that i wasn't able
0: to do for you
1: and i i don't get me wrong i was a great manager with you and we
0: accomplished i have um, a great analogy about your career okay i have a great analogy about your career um but yes Judy yes Judy so I want to finish with Judy because yeah.
1: because i think that the fact is is that when I was doing my stuff and I was growing and I was doing what I was doing, trying to expand, I was trying to help inspire young managers to be better and to take the reins and do things. And what happens when you do that as a manager sometimes, it's, it's, it's y- you're, you're failing. You're failing because if you can't find the right pieces to the puzzle that are going to make that artist feel as safe as you feel, and you made them feel, you're going to lose that artist yep. and i lost you because i if i had just stayed in your corner hundred percent throughout i would have been in much better shape and then even when vincent left or whatever however it was if i had been in your life the way you wanted me to be in your life towards the end instead of somebody who you felt like you were sort of somebody who was less significant than the other people you would have been there. But what Judy and that company brought to you is they brought to you a feeling of safety. Hey, listen, you can start headlining around the improvs all over. We'll start you in, you'll build your audience, you'll go around. And They had 19 comedy clubs. Yeah. And so, as a young father, and you had a family, and whatever, I could never provide that for you. And they provided that safety for you, and then they provided opportunities for you, and 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 they've continued to stay in your life that way and not put you in a position where you were with a younger person or whatever. And I have a lot of respect for Judy. But Judy's one of those people, again, I will say this honestly on this podcast, she's the kind of person sometimes I feel like if I were on the road and she were in a truck, she'd run me over with the truck. <laughs> uh, because I have done things in my career that are are unusual and I've done things a different way and taken a different path. And sometimes, you know, the way i've handled things in project that she'd been involved in because she was a casting director as well are not the way that she would want business to be done and i don't have uh you know i've never had a relationship with judy brown where it's like lovey-dovey or whatever but i think i hope she knows that i have an enormous amount of respect for her i think she does and that company is unbelievable and i love what they do and i'm 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 the greatest thing for me is to know that you are happy and you are doing well. I know that's kind of odd because normally, when you don't work or you break up with a girl or whatever it yeah. is, or and marriage ends, sometimes there's animosity or whatever. I have not one shred of animosity towards her or them or you. I want oh, you yeah. to do well. I don't have even that, the I travel show that you're doing. If you could, if you know this or whatever, Bert worked on a project that was. Uh, um, uh, Uh, an independent project where he did sort of like his own thing where he did a thing at the queen Mary or whatever Cinderella story. And he put a DVD together and we worked on editing and he did most all of the work but I might put some tweaks on or whatever. But the way I believe that the travel channel show, and this is how I have no absolute, and you might disagree with me that executive at the time called me and asked me, is there anybody, you know, who can do this kind of show? Yeah, And I didn't have anybody on my roster that could do that kind of show. We even remotely was right for that kind of show. But I said to them, there's a guy, Bert Kreischer, you should look at. And he did some kind of a pilot or something regar- regarding that. I think it was called Cinderella Story. And you were with Judy at the time. And he said, well, do you have anything on that? And I remember going through these boxes, <laughs> these old boxes of mine, and I found an old VHS or DVD copy of Cinderella Story. And I sent it to this executive, and I gave them your information, Judy's information, and that's the last I heard of them or whatever. But the yeah. fact is you still had to earn the gig. No, yeah, You still yeah. had to get the gig, and you still had to do whatever. But the point being is that it makes me happy that I've been a part of your life in some capacity, whether I'm 1% of your career or any percentage thereof. It makes well, me happy to know that you're doing well, and and, and this podcast is amazing, too. And you're just... You've always been the kind of guy who who was huggable, lovable, <laughs> and uh and you've also always been a guy who's been um quietly self destructive. Quietly very And very that's <laughs> and that's one of the things that if you want to talk about that, that I believe is the thing that's gonna be the difference of whether you're gonna take things to the next step or not.
0: Yeah, I think I think part I think that is a big Difference in my life. And I think that is always something you kind of always tried to get me to acknowledge is like, you know, like, uh you know, drinking. Was a, as I've always been a really big drinker. And I think the drinking has gotten me to definitely make a name for myself in the clubs. But I think also it's part where you just start getting to a point where you're like, Jesus Christ, man, I'm fucking 41 years old. Like, I'm not a college kid anymore. um But I want to talk about you. I want to talk about you. I don't want to talk about me. This is what I want to talk about. Whatever this you is, want, man. This, this is, is, is your okay. show. Self-destructive, just part. <laughs> we can fucking fill a boat, three podcasts with that. <laughs> the, uh, the. Now, this is the analogy I explained to someone. Everyone always says. I remember. I want to say. I don't know who it was. Someone was like, "I'm thinking about working with Barry. What do you think?" This was very recently. I was like, "Fucking do it." And I, and I, I, I said this analogy to him. You started out, and this is the analogy. As a professional surfer, you were a great surfer on the North Shore, but the truth was, you never felt comfortable with a break that broke right and doing that you're never going to surf pipeline and if you don't win pipeline you're not going to make a name for yourself and you realize that but you could also realize what made other surfers better surfers so you decided to manage and you started coaching surfers and in the process started making surfboards for them and helping them make their own surfboards for themselves and you were brilliant at that you were fucking brilliant at that when you were hungry, you would – I remember 10 minutes conversation with the Boston Comedy Club. You would spend all night, in this analogy, shaping fucking surfboards and taking a look at Louis C.K.'s surfboard and carving out the fine lines that maybe he didn't notice. Okay, Then you started getting bigger, and you're, you, you set up a shop for yourself, and you were selling your surfboards, and you had—you still had a small team that was massively successful. And that's when New Wave stepped in, and you got bought out by O'Neal, and you were still shaping – but your real goal was to teach everyone else how to shape. And in that process, and I believe this, and I don't know what you think, but I feel like you you probably went through what I think a lot of people, including myself, go through at this age in the business. You're probably like 45 at the time, and you were like, "What is this about? Like am I really a guy who just facilitates people getting famous or am I someone that can make things too?" Like I don't forget, I used to surf. I'm a waterman. Like that's the way your brain worked. And you started making TV shows, and you were really fucking good at that. But I do believe that a lot of us young pro surfers were like, I want him to come out and paddle out with me and explain how the fucking, why the wave breaks the way it does. And you're like, quite quite honestly, I don't have that time, but Brian Volkweis can teach you how to do that. (laughs) And and I remember going, like, Brian can barely fucking swim. (laughs) Like, you're sending out me with with the guy with the water wings on, and you want me to learn how to surf from him? I remember, like, Brian answered the phones when we first started shaping surfboards, and you want him to teach me how to surf? What does he know about fucking comedy? I remember distinctly. And so at that point, I think a lot of young surfers were like, fuck it, I'm going to go find other breaks, and I hope the best for Barry. But at the time, it was just like, I remember the first day you walked me through New Wave, it was like walking through a huge company, and you were showing me all the shops, and all of that was like... So unimportant to me because all I wanted to do was talk about my next set or like, you know, like whatever it was small in my world because you always were this. Really, honestly, the thing you are are best at is giving inspirational speeches and forming someone's set. You can get someone a seven-minute – you can can help someone make a a five-minute Tonight Show set in your sleep. You can take, you can tell people what jokes are unimportant and not hurt their feelings, and tell them how to make a joke better. And you can tell them the confidence they need to get on that stage and do that set. And I believe you will always be able. You can also go in to a room and set people up to have great meetings. That is the truth. But then you got involved in New Wave, and you got you had your fingers in so many pies. I mean, I don't know how many TV shows you. I don't time. Probably like twelve. <laughs> Like, yeah, some, I mean, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and these are TV shows that need your attention and you have huge clients, the biggest clients in the business. And then everything stopped. And and now you're back to making surfboards. Like you're back in a small shop on the North Shore shaping surfboards <laughs> for people who love to surf. And that's what I believe is happening. With, is that semi-accurate?
1: Well, I think it's uh, a lot of it's accurate in the sense that again for your listeners and f- is like whenever you take a check you lose control yeah that's why all of you out there that are creating your con- own content doing your own short films making your own youtube channels it's amazing it's by am- the
0: way brian volkois i know you heard this i love you brian i'm just saying at that time of my career i wanted barry's advice and maybe less of yours when it came to my stand-up. I'm sorry, Brian, if that sounded shitty to you. I love you, and I think you are doing big things at New Wave, but keep going.
1: Yeah, so it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> so I think... I forgot my train of thought for <laughs> a second. So you, you just mesmerized <laughs> me there, and I just was, uh, I was lost. Where was I? <laughs> you were saying that people that have control of their oh own Oh, yeah, peers, so, you so you have control of your own <laughs> thing. So it's like you take something like, let's say, like Vine... Okay, Vine is something that's been around for, I believe, 14 months. Maybe a year and a half at best. Okay? Six-second content. Mm -hmm. There are people who have no entertainment background. (laughs) They have no business savvy. (laughs) They have nothing but a dollar and a dream and an iPhone. Yeah. And they have millions of followers.
0: Ry Dune, I just had him on. He's a Boston kid. Yeah.
1: I just had him on. Ry Dune, Brittany for Long, Clarity, whatever it is, they're out there and they're making it happen with their brain, with their ideas, their content. There's people with YouTube channels like, you know, PewDiePie and you know and, and uh Grace Helbig who are doing amazing things, controlling their own destiny. And those are the people that I have an enormous amount of respect for because your audience, I bet 99.9999% of them have never put up a significant number of pieces of content that they've created up for people to see because it's nerve-wracking and it's scary because what happens if America says they don't like it. What happens if I have twenty seven views? Yeah. What does that mean about me? I'd rather not know that. It's like it's like not wanting to go to the doctor when you're feeling uh some pains around your body and saying, I don't want to go because I don't want to hear I have cancer.
0: Yeah, that is a really good analogy. And
1: so when I went to that company, <clears throat> you know, these people offered me something that I'd never been offered before. They offered me to finance my whole operation they allowed me to hire whoever i wanted i could produce whatever i wanted in-house i didn't have to go to this place for editing that place for color
0: correction and and at the time i will say you had the number one comic who knew how to make for himself yes to this day dane cook dane cook is dane cook works for dane cook and he will put money behind dane cook and if you tell dane cook i want you to do a set in front of a bunch of jihadists, the rule is they'll kill you if you don't kill. Dane will go; he'll roll the dice on Dane.
1: He will roll the dice. And there's times you tell you, you know, we always talk about Chappelle, and, you know, people will always say things one way or the other about him, but I can tell you one thing about your whole audience out there, which will be another 99.9999 percentile of none of you listening. Would ever turn down fifty million dollars because you no believed one. in yourself. No one, and said, "Fuck it, I'm not going to go this way. I'm going to go the way that I believe in." Mm-hmm. That's how. That's what a genius and what a brilliant person he is. Another person would say, "No, well, that's what a crazy person is." No, it's like Ian uh, Rand in The Fountainhead. The main character I'm escapes. Howard me, Rourke, Howard Rourke. You know, he had it all. But people said, hey, we're paying you. Could you change this and change this? Go fuck yourself. I'm going back to the quarry. Yeah. And so, for me, I wasn't
0: Howard Rourke. I took the check. Were you Keating? <laughs> Maybe. By the way, read the Fountainhead. This Fountainhead defines... It will define you, and you will find out who you are in life, and it will it will open your eyes up.
1: Yeah, so I, I took the check, and they... The owner of that company was amazing to me. He did everything for what I wanted to do, and he supported me. And for eight years, that guy uh, helped me do everything I wanted to do, and and I owe a tremendous amount to him. And when I left, but I in th-
0: return, you established New Wave Entertainment. Well, one, one, no, one no, might no, 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 no. Their only reason. Any comic talks about New Wave Entertainment. New Wave Entertainment was a post-production house that did trailers. Like, no one knew who... I, I, and I, I'll say this because one of my friends works there. It's like Big Boss. Big Boss is a great post-production house. One of the top post-production houses in the world. But no one knows of Big Boss' is selling product. They, they do an amazing job at what they do. One of the guys who did my documentary works at Big Boss. And they're fucking out of this world. They, they produce. They make a great product for what they do. But no one looks at them as selling sitcoms, and that was what happened with New Wave Entertainment. And you put them into the Hollywood landscape. No questions asked. There's no. not one question asked. Now I'm not saying you by yourself. You, Dane Cook, Jay Moore, uh, Louis Anderson, um, Gary Goldman, Whitney Cummings, um, Bob. All the people that you work with put them on the map.
1: Well, I, thank you. I mean, I don't. I that you know, everybody has you know. three sides to every story, but I appreciate that. But I think that that was the goal to go there and and you know you take a check and my goal was to treat that company like it was a a client and to be in a situation to move them to the next level when no one it was an underdog it was mm-hmm. a, the company was enormously successful in these areas that were not in the public eye because you know when you're doing the posters for Star Wars George Lucas isn't going to say hey new wave did my posters <laughs> yeah exactly gonna be like we did the fucking posters i don't know who you're talking about or if you're doing the trailers for or the finishing for warner brothers or for you know you're doing the behind the scenes for whatever you know huge movie lord of the rings or they don't want to know they don't want anybody to know that you did it. it was a secretive kind of incredible a plus operation yeah and the things that we did were not secretive they were in the they were in the realm of things in the business, and that's what we did. And so going back to your story, so when I, when I took that check, yes, you're right. Um, I think that I lost, I l- you lose a part of yourself in anything. When you're doing the sitcom that you're going to do, there's going to be people who are going to tell you that you have to do things a certain way over and over again. And you're going to push back on some, but you're going to compromise on others because you're taking the check. The check pays the mortgage, the check pays the schools where you're at, pays for that nice dinner with your wife on your anniversary, and you want a style of life that you have because of it. And I'm proud that when I did leave New Wave uh, that it was where it was and it was doing well, and I'm proud of the success they're having. Uh, and, and they're doing great right now. Yeah, they're, I mean, yeah,
0: I only I I I know this because I follow Brian on uh, Facebook, but they produced Tom Segura's... Uh, album on net or comedy se- uh special on Netflix yeah
1: and when when I, when I was there we uh, started an initiative of, of doing uh digital stuff and doing a lot of our specials. i think we'd done like i think we've done like we'd done like thirty specials by the time I, I i left there but i you know it's like and they're doing great work and I want them to do great and I want them to succeed well yeah, you're
0: not someone you've been stabbed in the back a lot and you've had a lot of And I say stab in the back. Let me rephrase that because that sounds weird. But you have been someone who's been screwed over before, but you don't have ill will against people, and you don't hold that in you. And I'm shocked because, uh, like, I when I when I get wronged, I end up I stew with it. Like I don't ever talk shit about people, and I don't wish ill will on people. But I do. I feel hurt for a long time. I think it's because I'm sensitive. And and but you don't. You genuinely go. You, I really do believe you genuinely want people that you did work at the New Wave to just succeed and keep coming, and keep.
1: I want them to do. I mean, because if they do well, I think that whatever the foundation was that we put together together as a team with myself and their team continues, and it's a, it can only be good for everybody, I and mean, there's enough for everybody. I don't, I don't want to. I sit across from you and I'm embarrassed that I haven't spent more time with you since we stopped working. I'm well, embarrassed that Your I haven't life got to you.
0: extremely complicated.
1: It did get complicated, but also I think that I think that with you and I I think that there were situations that I was sad about and I don't take things personally and it was nothing to do with business. But you know, one of the things that I love so much that meant so much to me, uh with you, as crazy as it sounds, I'm going to share this with you because you probably don't even know this, and you'll probably edit this out of your podcast or whatever. But, <laughs> but one of the things I looked forward to every year was something that happened at a park in Hollywood with you and your kids. It was an annual birthday thing that you oh always yeah. had for your kids, yeah. and I always was there, and I always was invited to come. Sometimes with my little ones or whatever. And then uh, you invited me to come one year, and after you made the switch, and then you called me and you said, Barry, um, can I ask you a favor? And I said, yeah, what is it? uh, um, Would you mind not coming to the birthday party? Did I say that? And I said, uh, well, I'll do anything you want me to do. What's up? And you said, well my managers come to the birthday party and if you come to the birthday party i know they're gonna feel Jesus uncomfortable Christ. and uh so i'd prefer if you just do me a favor I, I would love you to be there but it'd probably make things easier for me if you didn't come
0: holy shit i'm definitely not editing that out but
1: and so that was a moment in my life where i said my god it's like again it's like when you take the check It's like when you sign with a new management company or a new agency, you you don't want to make waves. You're doing everything to try to just make things the way they're supposed to be. And you're acquiescing to certain people's idiosyncrasies or what you perceive to be their idiosyncrasies as opposed to just going and being your own person and your own man. And if they go along with it, great. And if they don't... Then they're not your manager anymore, and there'll be another person that will be okay with me being there or whatever. So God,
0: I wonder. I wonder. I. I I mean, I have no real recollection of that, but I always go like, fucking. You can fill a boat with what I don't remember that I've done or said. Like I look back, but yeah, that's. Fu- I'm sorry I did that because I, I, like Leanne was kind of excited that you're coming here. She's like, I'm dynasty see pictures of his boys, like, I, and I <laughs> She's and it was so funny. Woman. I said Barry's coming by to George and Isla, and they're like, Wait, do we know Barry? I go, Do you remember the beach parties we used to go to? <laughs> and they're like, Yeah. I go, Remember the two beautiful boys with long hair? And they're like, Yeah. I go, That's Barry. And they're like, Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, it, it, you know, you you did have you did have a very familial way of running your company. For a long time, even well into New Wave. I mean, I remember going to the park. I, mean, I remember your wedding. It was a fucking blast. <laughs> I'll never forget me and John DiMaggio. And I want to say Bobcat by No Bobcat Sober. No, no, it wasn't Bobcat. Me, uh, John DiMaggio. Nick Swartzen. And was it Nick Swartzen? Yeah. Got high outside, <laughs> smoked a joint, and then tried to sneak back into the wedding. And we climbed through... a the the curtains and we walked on stage when someone was giving a toast that's right we walked right on stage and we were like uh uh and then John DiMaggio grabbed the mic and started giving more of a toast and then Bobcat goes Bert get up there and then I got up there and they started playing the recordings of your (laughs) ex-wife's family's messages from Russia and it was like but it was like the funnest fucking wedding it was like we had such a blast sitting in the back When you guys did the thing under the Hoopa? It was
1: at the Casa Del Mar on the ocean, and we went out on the ocean, and there were so many things. But one of the things you learn, I learned from you, Bert, that night, that I hadn't learned in my whole life, is that, and this is, you'll you'll, you'll love this, and hopefully your audience will get this. If you're at a wedding, the amount of alcohol somebody drinks is directly in correlation to the amount of clothing they loosen or take (laughs) off by the end of the night. So Bert started off in this beautiful tuxedo all put together. You could get in a hurricane, his hair wouldn't move. By the end, he literally has a bow tie and boxer shorts on and socks. I <laughs>
0: had my I had my, my tie around my head, and I remember you coming up to me going, I am glad you didn't have anything to drink at this wedding. I go, Are You kidding me? I'm fucking hammered. I'm him <laughs> sitting next to Bobcat Goldthwait." <laughs> I fucking had the best time at your wedding. I remember talking Russian to your wife, ex-wife's family in the I mean, bathroom. People were like, "Buddy Hackett."
1: People were fucking women, and I was, it was like the craziest oh, it thing. It was like I couldn't believe what was happening at my
0: wedding. Someone brought like ten pre-rolled joints to your wedding, and all I know is that we <laughs> tore through those motherfuckers. And then, the best was the best. And this is, and I, by the way, this is, I mean, this is so amazing. I'm making sure it's not Long Beach. Um, um. This is legend. This is legend. The, Buddy Hackett, the late Buddy Hackett, was there. Buddy is someone you introduced me to, and le- I got on the set of Action, and I met Buddy there. Buddy was
1: well, Buddy was just so good to me, and I, I met Buddy through uh, Jeff Ross and um, Jeff, and, and I became came so friendly with Buddy. And, and, and Buddy
0: was a drinker until his last days.
1: Yes, and he and he was uh, one of a moment that you, you sometimes you don't know what you mean to people yeah and for me one of the things sitting across from you and you tell these stories of me and i'm being honest with you i sometimes i forget what i mean to you or what i meant to you
0: oh it, i think and so heartedly and yeah. so because
1: i don't i don't really get it and and i didn't really understand what i meant to buddy Hackett. Until the night he died, and I got the call from his wife, Sherry. Barry, um, Buddy, passed away, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, Sherry. And she said, come over. Wow. And I came over, and I opened the door, and it's just her. Oh, wow. And I believe one of her daughters is in the kitchen. And I'm hanging with her, and the doorbell rings, and she said, could you open the door? And it's Jeffrey Ross. Yeah. And we hang out for another half hour, an hour, and the doorbell rings again. And it's Jay Moore. And the three of us were there for like four hours until like three in the morning yeah and it was just us, and that's when you realize you know you don't think that you could mean something to somebody who's like one of the greatest legendary the guy did the first two h b o specials he was making a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a week in nineteen fifty one in Vegas, and this guy your wife his wife knew that these three people. Meant he wasn't calling like Newhart or Norm Crosby or whatever who were he introduced Bob Newhart to his wife, but we were there. Yeah, and so that meant a lot. So when Buddy came to the wedding, it meant a lot until yeah. until all
0: hell broke loose. Hold on one sec. Hold on one sec. I gotta make sure. So sorry everybody, that was a slow pause. We checked our phones. Um, uh, but th- your wedding is maybe. I'll I'll say in my in what things I've witnessed and I've witnessed a lot of insane shit. One of the most legendary things I've ever seen. So, uh, Buddy Hackett goes up to give a speech. And now, mind you,
1: I just want to preface this, but what happened was is that the best man, who was a very dear friend of mine, Martin Fromer, who owned a uh, thrift shop oh on Melrose, he God. was going up to give the 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 speech. And buddy Hackett walked up and sort of took over.
0: He grabbed the mic from him because martin was not by the way I think Martin started speaking and it was kind of going nowhere and Buddy grabbed the mic from him and now now Barry, barry's ex wife was a huge Beatles fan, correct
1: actually, what happened was just so uh I wanted to surprise people uh and I found this replica Beatles band, which is very popular now in Vegas, called the Fab Four. Yeah. And they dress like the Beatles. They they look like the Beatles. And they did the three uh, styles of Beatles. They did the early Beatles, the Sgt. Pepper Beatles, and the Let It Be Beatles. And no one at the wedding knew that I had them and they had a specific keyboard set up that was on there that is pro, was programmed to do certain things in Beatles situation for cuz the Beatles didn't use a keyboard in the early Beatles but they yeah. used it in the middle and and the late uh, phases of their career. And so I I want you to tell the story but the first thing Buddy did was he he went up and and he you know keep in mind this was a a a wedding where there were a lot of people from uh outside of the country my uh, my ex uh, uh, was from the former Soviet Union uh, there were people from Australia where they where they moved to and all over and it was a formal wedding
0: one side was all family and literally the other side was comics
1: yeah and it was a it was a very you know and so buddy goes up and he says you know something to the effect of like you know hey it's nice of that female rabbi you got there
0: well buddy during the moment where you guys go under the hoopah and and step on the glass Buddy was in the back roasting the rabbi. So, like, we were all in the back. Me, John DiMaggio, Bobcat are all sitting next to Buddy and, and Jeff Ross, and he is roasting the rabbi in the back, and we were on the fucking floor. I walked all the way on the beach for this. A fucking female rabbi? When did we get a female fucking rabbi? Literally lighting her on fire, and we were laughing hysterically. So because, the...
1: because she want, my, my ex wanted to have a female rabbi, but the, the thing is you should know about Jewish weddings. <laughs> the
0: first thing Barry needs to do is stand up for this marriage and get a male re- rabbi. <laughs> I mean, Buddy's in the back lighting it up, and then he gets on stage and says, first thing we need to do is get rid of that female rabbi, <laughs> which does not. And, she, and she's in the room. And she's in the room. And then he, and it, and it gets a laugh, and the laugh stops, and Buddy goes to say his next line, and he hears a humming.
1: He hears the humming, but just before you go, he, he, the thing was, if you're if you're in a Jewish uh, ceremony, what happens is is the rabbi, regardless if they're female or not, they at least have to mention at one time about the ketubah. And the ketubah is a Jewish uh, a marriage license that basically protects the woman in divorce and if things don't go right in the marriage. So it, it has to be mentioned that there is the possibility that in, the, in divorce or in something that doesn't go right, that the woman will be taken care of. But this woman mentioned it like seven times in the <laughs> thing. It kept, you know, every like five minutes, it was like about divorce or getting, but, you know, so that's what Buddy Maybe she's a prophet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she is a prophet. Enough like... with a katooba. I mean, Buddy is murdering is murdering on stage and but there's this humming in the background and he's and he's killing so hard that when he says can someone turn this fucking keyboard off it gets a huge laugh and and then he goes i'm serious with the fucking keyboard bigger laugh says a joke and he goes god damn it if you don't turn this fucking keyboard off i'll turn it off for you huge laugh and he takes his drink and he throws it on the keyboard and i swear to you Now, mind you, this is my narrative, this is the way I remember it, and I was drunk, but I swear to God, sparks shot up, you heard a, and smoke came out of the keyboard, and it destroys, to the point we think it's a fucking prop, and everyone is laughing hysterically, Buddy finishes, closes, ends strong, and Barry's night is sent into a fucking tailspin.
1: It's sent into a tailspin because the manager of the Fab Four takes me aside and tears me into asshole. You motherfucker! (laughs) You ruined that keyboard. That's a special keyboard. Now you're only going to get the early Beatles all night long.
0: (laughs) But it was so fucking funny that everyone. So the
1: whole wedding was I want to hold your hand for seven hours. Michelle, my bell for like,
0: oh, oh, my
1: God, it was it was incredible. It was
0: it was one of the most memorable nights uh, I'll ever have, because obviously it was led by Buddy Hackett and I would not leave his side. I just sat next to him and I'd met him, you know, like I said, on the set uh, of of uh, traffic, not traffic, uh, whatever action. And we sat and I sat in his in his trailer all night drinking with him. He had this special concoction of like tequila, whiskey and vodka that he liked to drink and it was in his thing, and 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 every time I, he always had a flask with him, always had a flask with him, and you always took a shot with him. Even when I was sober, I'd do a shot with Buddy Hackett. But uh, but that wedding was fucking phenomenal. And then did you did you? And I only ask you this, and I, I don't, you can don't don't answer because I, I don't can want answer to any question. Like, more. did you go through you, you leave New Wave and you get a divorce at pretty much at the same time? I'm not actually divorced
1: yet. I'm separated, but I I, I am getting a divorce yet. Um. It's interesting, and and again, one of the things that I have a lot of respect for you is, like, look, Leanne's an amazing woman, and it takes a really, really amazing woman to, <laughs> to keep the train on the tracks. <laughs> oh, because, God, you know, men are like furniture. You just push them from one side of the room. You know, we don't understand. We don't we don't get it, yeah. you know, and we don't know as much. And, and look, I'm proud of uh, my relationship with Suzanne. I mean, when you have something that goes, you know, 10 15 years and you have a beautiful family and in any town in any environment i feel like it's like it's like almost like the whitney show going two seasons it's like yeah you want to go the distance when you watch the super bowl and you say hey there's the harbaugh parents rooting who are they rooting for they've been together for 50 years or whatever but the point is is that i love i love Susanna. i still believe it or not i still we still live in the same house Really? Uh, We still have a great relationship. Are you guys
0: still in the house that you were before? Yeah, yeah. Fucking great. Yeah, fucking
1: love that place.
0: You're, you're, you're a. I remember very early on when you were like, uh, when I moved out here, you're like, you gotta decide what kind of guy you are. I'm a beach guy. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the ocean, and again, you always, you know. you always move and for you know i had a place in marine del rey and i loved it and you know i i ended up selling that you know you end up moving from just like you know you love this place and you'll end up moving to it you know your life takes you in different directions but when i did uh leave there i don't think it had anything to do with the relationship thing it looks like it's correlated but i don't think it is um i think that i'm exactly where i'm supposed to be and going with the what you said with the clients and things and the surfboards or whatever as dr phil might say you know there's only one person that can play you and so i'm responsible for every single thing good and bad that's happened in my life and the reason why i don't hold any grudges or anybody and i sit across from me i don't hold any grudges because i know what we did together but what's the point i know my part yeah i know my part and i know what the deal is and 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 if if i'd have done things a certain way or whatever and there's certain things where yeah you say well things aren't you know yeah you walk down the street and the jet engine falls and hits you on the head you don't have any part in that right you know if you're driving down the highway and somebody just swerves in a lane
0: and kills you you don't have any part in that. there's an easy way to find that you're part in that though but there's like someone like me will find out well if i hadn't gotten if i hadn't slept in then i wouldn't be walking to school late and the jet engine would not hit me in the head that's the way my brain works it could be but i always find my fault in everything and i think to a fault i do that it
1: could be and and sometimes you're as a manager you'll get a call from somebody who will let you go and you'll excuse me you'll hang up the phone and i'm embarrassed to say this you'll be like oh i'm so relieved (laughs) i'm so relieved that this happened and there's other times where i've resigned from working with people and i've been i felt i felt sick to my stomach and i i don't know what that's about but you know in terms of control i don't like to i don't necessarily like to have the control when a relationship is ending i like somebody else to really feel it or whatever bernie Brillstein used to have this great line and i met with him uh for breakfast about Six months before he dies, one of the greatest managers he ever. Managed,
0: he managed all the people from SNL, including Lauren Michaels, John Belushi, Chris Farley, everyone.
1: And he said to me, he said, Barry, I want you to, I'm going to give you some words of advice, which believe it or not, I still haven't necessarily followed to a T. He said, if the flashing light is on on your phone and it's a client who's on the other line, they're on hold, and there's a pit in your stomach, fire them. And I told him there, I said, Bernie, I said, you know, it's easy for you to say you're in your 70s, you've accomplished a lot, you've banked up a lot of uh, assets, and um, you can do that. But for me, I'm still, I perceive myself, even though other people might think differently of me, I feel like I've never accomplished what I want to accomplish, and I never have gotten where I want to go, and I'm always setting my sights higher and higher. And so if I did hang up the phone with those select people who I felt the pit in my stomach throughout the years that would be self destructive for me. Yeah. But in turn you should just listen to your instincts as an artist and as a manager because that's the only way you're going to that's the only way you're going to grow. Now for you and myself I never felt the pit in my stomach and that's one of the I things always
0: felt I always felt when I called that the pit was in your stomach. I think that's, and I, that's, the main reason I left was that I couldn't get you on the phone, and I couldn't get your attention, and I couldn't get you to focus, and there were like two or three instances, oh, grandma my gardener's here. I'm good. How you doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I felt like you were, you were, you were not getting the nuances of my personality, and like the things that were making me me, I felt like you thought should not, should no longer happen to be me. And I was like, no, but like, uh, like, and so I think that's when I just was like, I was like, you know what, what I'm, I was really, I was definitely, and I'm always afraid of change. I'm afraid of, I'm also massively afraid of confrontation. I hate confrontation. So I, but I think that leaving you honestly was the best thing I've done in my career because it, it made me responsible for me. I, I was so dependent on you to take care of me. That I was like, I'd call you. I go, what am I going to do for money? Do you remember me calling you when I had Georgia, and I and I I didn't have yeah. any fucking money, and I and and I was I ran out all my money, and I didn't have any road work, and I was like, I need money. I'm having a kid. I'm broke. I owe money to the IRS, and I'm I'm broke. And you, that guy, I didn't respect me, me calling you, going, I need money. What do I do? Like I'm a fucking grown man, and here I am. I'm about to have a child, and I'm calling a guy, going, Can you get me money? Like. And I and I I think I've definitely, I've changed a great deal as a man. I still have a lot of fucking growth to do. I'm still a fucking hot mess in uh, so many fucking respects. But I think that was, you know, for me, that was, which is, by the way, one of the more interesting things about Barry, you have had the biggest names in comedy and been fired by the biggest names <laughs> in comedy. Who, Dane Cook, which, by the way, fucking, blo- were you shocked when he fired you?
1: no no i wasn't shocked at all because, i was because because blown i blown away but i but I, I wasn't shocked because i know the circumstances and again uh those were circumstances that that happened that uh, that actually did not involve me directly uh but i couldn't but i was a part of I was a part of it, and I, I, felt, I, I felt bad for him because, uh, because he wasn't feeling comfortable, and, um, you know, I probably, if I wasn't at New Wave um, at that time, we'd probably still be together, but yeah. there were a lot of issues that were going on that, um, but, you know, I still talked to him. At least I saw him the other night at uh, BOA, and uh, I've been to his house, and he just reached out to me the other day. and He uh, seemed really happy. Yeah, I mean, it's the the thing is, is that it nothing shocks me. I mean, I think the probably the the one that probably shocked me the most in my life was probably you know Tracy Morgan because you're you're you know you're at the Boston Comedy Club. We used to have these roasts, and they used to roast me, and all the comics used to go up and just Jeff Ross would host, and they'd all just you know do their thing and practice their roasting skills, and yeah. And Tracy walked in and, uh, you know, he'd just gotten on Saturday Live, I think a year earlier or something, and uh, after he'd been living in the projects and had four kids and was, you know, really in danger and on welfare. And and uh, he didn't understand the concept of a roast, <laughs> so he went on and he... He walked up, and he was sort of crying and saying, you guys are all assholes. How dare you shit on this guy? This guy took me out of the projects (laughs) and put me in a nice place and a (laughs) high-rise. My kids are having a great education, (laughs) and and you guys should have a little respect and get yourself a Jew white manager. And then he walked off misty-eyed off into the streets of Greenwich Village. And then four days later, I got a phone call from him saying, listen, this isn't working out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would surprise you more, getting a call from Dane to represent you again or Dave Chappelle to represent you again?
1: What would surprise me the most? That's yeah. a great question. It would probably surprise me more uh, if Dave Chappelle called me only because he's you know, lived an existence that has been outside of the game. Yeah. So Dave lives his life in existence not playing the game. And so technically speaking, because I function as a manager slash producer of television and film, I'm technically part of the system and playing the game. Yeah. Whereas he's, you know, in a system where this is what's crazy for you and your audience. Everybody's like, We gotta do social networking, we gotta do podcasts, we've gotta tweet. We've got to get our Facebook page ready. We've got to get it all together and work it all. Yep. Dave Chappelle doesn't have a fucking website. Dave Chappelle probably never tweeted in his life. Dave Chappelle could give a shit. Yet Dave Chappelle could make a phone call to a Houston radio station right now and, and say, You know, a fucking I'm, st- I'm going to be doing this 5,000 seat theater tonight. Um, we only have tickets on sale for another four hours. And it would be sold out and they'd be adding a second show. Yeah. Um so the fact is is that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter when it comes to those those things. Yeah. And that's when it, so so Chappelle is working in that world where he doesn't he doesn't need anybody. Yes, if he had a manager and if he had an agent that he really trusted who did film and television and he really worked hard at creating and putting things out there and that's what he wanted. Yes, of course, I could help him. I managed him for eight years i don 't think anybody else managed him for more than a year yeah uh and i what i what we accomplished together was insane i mean we had seven i think we had seven development deals in eight years. He did four hundred million dollar movies. I mean, I know what we did yeah. I know what I can do with people, but I think Dane is still working in the system. he has an agency he still wants to get film roles he still wants to develop his television shows he still wants to tour in a relevant way he still wants to make his impact with content as an artist dane cook still cares what people think about him and his craft dave Chappelle doesn't give a shit what anybody thinks. thinks all he cares about is what the guy upstairs thinks and what he thinks yeah and that's it and you know, he's living in Ohio on a farm or wherever it is with his family with and he he's he doesn't he doesn't care. All he cares about is just doing what satisfies him and what helps his family and that's all. So Dave would be the one that I would be surprised at. However, I will say this is that people always play the game, name a musical artist and tell me if he's a genius or not, or she's a genius or not. Dave Chappelle from the moment I met him, like you. I met him without knowing him that well. He was eighteen years old and I wanted to represent him and I knew that he would do something just like I knew you would. As a matter of fact, when I sat down to lunch with Dave at Real Food Daily about a year ago, my ass just hits the seat and I'm and he says, Do you know what month it is right now? I said, I Yeah, I don't know what month it is. He said, but you know what the significance is. I said, no, I don't think I do. He says, it's 20 years ago today that you met me. Really? Do you, 20 years ago this month that you met me. I said, he said, do you remember where you met me and what you said to me? I said, I remember it like yesterday. You were about 17 years old. You, Jason Steinberg, who was the manager of the club at the time, told me to come back on a Tuesday. You'd performed on a Monday and to see you. And I met you before the show started at the Boston Comedy Club in the main part of the club, and I shook your hand, and I looked at you, and I said, listen, I want to represent you. I think you're going to be one of the biggest stars in comedy and film, and you're going to change the face of comedy. And you were gracious, and you said, you know, Barry, you know what are you talking about? You've never even seen me perform. You haven't seen a videotape. You don't know me. And... uh And then I said, you know, well, shaking your hand, it's like the dead zone. I can see the future, and that's what I see. And at that table, you know when you're at a place, and again, maybe I'm
0: exaggerating. I don't think I am because of the way I remember (laughs) them. By the way, thank you, because that's my entire life story. I I think I'm exaggerating, but this is the way I fucking remember it.
1: Yeah. You know when somebody slaps a table so hard that the dishes shake and the silverware shakes in a restaurant and people are sort of looking at, like, what's happening? And he slaps the table and he's like and he gets into that Dave that's not angry Dave but like you know, forcefully he's like, That's right. That's right. And it haunts me every time I think about it. And literally I sit back in my chair and I'm like, Dave, I just you know, I just sat down and I'm, I'm just I just wanted to talk to you. And then he got into solemn Dave and he's like, I'm sorry, man. Just every time I think about that moment. I just say to myself, How the fuck did he know? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> and so oh. and so that's the thing that I happens to be sometimes yeah. <laughs> like that. And so with Dave, I know what I did and I know his talent what he did. And with Dane, I know what I did and I know what he did with his talent. You yeah. talked about talent betting on themselves. This is a guy that in the beginning had $25,000 in the bank from college gigs, and he said, Barry, I want to build a website in 2000. I'm, and I'm like, a web what?
0: That's back before
1: anyone He's fucking He's like, I want to build a website. I said, I don't see what you mean. But actually, I, I normally am a visionary. Here I was, and he said, listen, Barry, I need to build a great website, and you need to help me do this. And his website... And I said, well, what do you need me to do? I, he said, I need you to talk to this guy from the U.S. Army. That's the best website out there. Whoever designed the U.S. Army website. I said, are you, we're doing comedy here, Dane. What do you think? Barry, find the guy. Negotiate it. the deal. I call the guy. Toughest negotiation I ever had in my life. The guy wouldn't budge on anything. I fought with the guy forever. He wanted $25,000 for a website with all these pages. The way Dane wanted. And I finally might have gotten three more pages out of him for nothing. But And Dane launched this website that basically no... Fucking the Rolling Stones didn't have a website like this. Nobody had a website. And, and this changed the face of everything. And he's put content up. He put things up. And he would answer every email he got. <sighs> the first 15,000 emails he got, he answered personally. And it started going... And, you know, again, I probably, you know, for myself, for my podcast, people say, well, how are you up there in, like, the top 50 or like, yeah. podcasts? And how does how did you launch at number three? Nobody knows you. Nobody knows the people you're talking to. And to be honest with you, it's an anomaly to me because <laughs> I, am, I can do it for somebody else. Like, you could say to me, you could sit across from me and say, Barry, could you help me do this, 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 and this, and this? And I would make it happen for you, but for myself, I, I couldn't social network to save my life, and so these things are happening basically because people like you are saying to somebody else, "Listen, I've, you should listen to that," and then somebody else. I've talked else about is your
0: podcast. I've talked about your podcast on this podcast plenty of times because because yeah. it is a great podcast,
1: and so it's because of you and
0: the word of mouth. It's not because of my. I smell. Son. I smell in the Barry Cats future a lecture series at colleges. Why not? Can I tell you what podcast I'd like you to hear you do? I would like to hear you talk to uh, the guy who wrote uh, Save the Cat. I'd like to hear you talk about a screenplay and how to write a screenplay and sell a screenplay. I want to hear how to write uh, a treatment. You should be, th- what you're doing is, what you're doing is 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 valuable. And I, I I wouldn't be shocked if you did a college tour. I know you know how to book those. <laughs> and talked to young young people that want to get in the industry about, the different avenues to get into the industry, the different opportunities. I would do. I would go. I'd pay money to see that, Barry. I would pay money to see that.
1: Well, this is one of the, you know, the toughest things because you do something like this, and I do it, and I come on things like this because I want to make. I want to make a difference to people. I really do. Yeah. I Don't and and there have been offers to do things like you're talking about. There's been offers to do. I've had television people talking about doing things. I've had theatrical plays digital theatrical plays where you have a panel of people to do things and i just feel like i i I don't want to get away from what i what i am but i also
0: surfboard shaper
1: a surfboard shaper
0: (laughs) but i also
1: i also don't want to get away from doing something that helps people
0: yeah well i think i think uh i'll tell you what and i I said this to whoever and and i'm I, I'm not going to, I remembered who it was, but and I'll tell you later, but, uh, whoever it was. And I was like, I think in your career right now, Barry could do nothing but amazing stuff for you. And, uh, and I, and I, and I'm, and like I said, and I, well, as soon as I found out you were putting up your own shingle and by yourself, I think that's the right term, but by yourself again, I was like, I was like, Ooh, this is going to be an interesting chapter. This is going to be the fucking chapter where you're like, shut the fuck up. They didn't kill him all the way. He lives. You mean he's coming back into the village? Oh, people have shit to pay for.
1: Well, I don't know about that, but I just – I had my own thing. This is the weird part. you know. I had my own thing, for those of you who don't know. I I had my own company beforehand, and I was always like – for like 15 years, and I was always thinking to myself, okay, let's get a comedy club going. Let's get a personal appearance thing going. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's hire 10 people. Let's open up an office in L.A. And I was always doing that stuff. And I feel like, in a way, uh, it's like a selfish move, slightly, doing my own thing. And even when I got in my new office, which is, you know, I, I love where I am in Century City and it's incredible... Uh, place. I literally the first night I was there I stayed late and I was walking around and I was thinking to myself, God, okay, let's see. If I hire this one I could put them there and if I could (laughs) take over that office there and that and I literally stopped in the (laughs) middle of my sentence in my head and said to myself, Shut the fuck up. Be your own guy. Don't worry about anything else. Have a better life for you and the people who believe in you and just don't complicate winning. and just just do your thing and i could have worked out of my just like you said you know you're doing your podcast out of your man cave i could have i in my house i have this whole you know like thousand square foot or whatever it is office space that's all hooked up with phones that no one would even know where i was or how whatever and i just i know i could have done that but i just i didn't I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to have my own space. It was really nice. And if I was going to invite a network president to my office to do a podcast, and we're going to sit down for 90 minutes, I want them to feel like comfortable and feel like, again, it's part of their world and part of what it is. Yeah. But... I don't know how much more time we have, but I want
0: to... I've got a meeting at 12.15. So how
1: much more time do we have? One Uh, minute, five minutes? One minute. One minute. (laughs)
0: Yeah, what would you say to someone in one minute, Barry?
1: Well, this is what I want to say in one minute. (laughs) I want everybody to know this, is that Bert Kreischer is an example of somebody when he was starting who created a fucking problem. He went in situations when no one expected him to, and he won. He beat the system. He beat the system because he prepared harder than everybody else. He didn't have a sense of entitlement. He studied people. And this is what Bird did that he didn't realize that he did. He studied greatness. He imitated greatness. And he became great.
0: That's, that's a fucking and, well worth that and, <laughs>
1: and that. and that's what he did. Now, throughout his career... There's been times where he would readily admit to you that he didn't do that. Maybe drank a little too much. Maybe yeah. partied a little too much. Maybe <laughs> thought a little too much about certain people. Maybe talked shit about certain people. Maybe, maybe uh, hung out at the improv a little too long. Uh, maybe didn't create enough content. Yeah. But the fact is is that he wrote that out, and now he's doing his own show, which is very difficult to do, and you have to go in the rooms and you have to win. And, again, you have to get that development deal, but it's like the NFL playoffs, what he's doing right now. Yeah, he won the wild card game. He's got a television deal. And now he's got to get a pilot going. He's got to get a pilot going. And to do that, he's got to do a script and get a script that's approved. If he gets the script that's approved, hey, guess what? He won the conference game. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay? Then if he gets the order for the pilot, hey, guess what? He won the championship game. But now he's got to get the pick up to series, okay? And if he gets the pick up to the series and gets on the air, he's won the Super Bowl. (laughs) And the only way he's going to win another Super Bowl is if America says, that's my fucking guy. I'm going to tell everybody to watch that show. Similarly to people say, listen to your podcast or mine. And that's what you're doing and that's what every artist listening or anybody who listens to your podcast, wherever you are, should know is that you can do it and you can beat other people who are more qualified than you. And if you do the right things and you study and figure out how to be better and work harder than everybody else, you can make it happen and that's what you've done and I'm very, very proud of you, and I'm honored that you had me on
0: the podcast. I'm very grateful. Well, if you want to listen to a Super Bowl winner, talk to other Super Bowl winners. Go to Industry Standard. It is Barry's podcast. It is fascinating. If you are a college kid, and you want to come out to LA, and you want to have dreams, this is the podcast that will steer you. This is your self-help podcast. It is fantastic, Barry. It is an honor to talk to you again i miss you immensely you're such a fucking insightful great guy and you've had such a role in everything i have in my life and where i am today i could not thank you enough i i only hope that we can keep in touch and maybe have you back on the podcast and do it again
1: oh i'd love that and i love you and i thank you so much and you've had a huge impact on my life and my career too
0: what a great way to end i love you barry love you too